0: you're listening to The Dap Project, I am Rhonda Elizabeth, your co-host.
1: And I am your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. This is our season three closing episode. As I look back on the time we spent hearing from some remarkable folks on the podcast, so many reminders of the state of the world drift in and out of my mind.
0: Let's go back to November of 2020. Just for a moment, we were still in the middle of a pandemic. 3.7 million jobs have been lost in the United States and 53.7 million positive cases of the coronavirus worldwide. These were grim statistics for sure, but we kept supporting each other and advocating grinding and voting. Joe Biden won the presidential election against Donald Trump, results which for several months he refused to accept. And there was a shift in the national discourse towards hope.
1: Yes, keeping hope alive even after witnessing an insurrection from a mob at our nation's capital and claims that the 1619 Project was not based on actual American history.
0: Come on, Jesse Jackson. Yes, that was crazy. How do you come back as a nation from that
1: mess? What can our two voices and the insights that our guests share offer to our progress towards that better that we seek? Educators, historians, advocates for gender rights and environmental justice. To name a few, align with our quest and share with us how they are working to come back better. We are fortunate to have this platform to share our talks with you, the TDP audience.
0: We say frequently that the DAP project sits at the intersection of storytelling, joy, and justice. To conclude our third season, we're revisiting stories that we loved, conversations that brought us joy, and insights that teach us about social justice.
1: As we clean up that stank and stain that trump left behind there's a lot more room for hope as we move through 2021 we continue to keep a better future at top of mind as we prepare to speak with more guests for the podcast
0: our sincere intention is that these conversations inspire you to take action exercise radical imagination and disciplined hope
1: in every episode we like to get to know our guests as people So we ask about stories of their childhood. We were not prepared for this story from environmental justice activist Taylor Morton who grew up in rural South Carolina. They say their father was a huge influence on their respect and comfort for the outdoors. This story confirms it.
0: So if you're scared of crickets, maybe this next question will be really intense. Um, Have you ever come face to face with a bear?
2: Yes, uh, my father is. My father was the black bear uh, biologist in South Carolina. Um, so his job was that when pe- when bears uh, break into people's homes or bird feeders or whatever, um, he would tranquilize them and then drive them either deeper into the woods or take them to uh, like some like they have like bear orphanages like in different places in the south. So um, sometimes like he would we would I like remember this time clearly. I came home. And uh, I saw this this big trailer outside and inside it was a sleeping bear it passed out in the back. And uh, I came in and he was fixing a sandwich. I was like, so what what's happening? Like, what's going on? There's a bear in the driveway. He said, yeah, I'm on the way to take it to the mountains, but I stopped to fix me a sandwich. And I was just like, what's going on? He's like, I'm fixing a sandwich. I'm on the way out to work. You know, I'll, I'll like catch you later. But um, We've held, my brother and I, we've held baby bears before, and uh, ones who've, uh, who've, uh, their mothers have gotten hit by cars or anything like that, and they're on their way on to another destination. So I've always had very friendly bear encounters.
0: Some folks who do justice work have early life experiences that set them on their paths. Vincent Sutherland, Executive Director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law at NYU School of Law, describes the event that ignited his passion for the law.
3: The type of law that I engage in and do now it was kind of in the mix of that awakening that I had um, when I moved from Stratford to Beacon Falls in middle school, you know what I noticed like very clearly was that everyone, like my identity and my race shaped, not only like the perceptions of people that people had about me, but the way in which I walked through the world. And right around the same time, I started learning about like the civil rights movement, learning about enslavement, learning about kind of our history and learning about how all that was constructed by way of law. It made me think, well, how do we actually change people's behavior? How do we change something about this system, this dynamic? How do we change the way that people respond or react to me um, or respond or react to people that, that look like me? Um, and there's a law, a tool that allows you to do that. Um, and, and that's, I think, what really got me interested and focused on wanting to be a lawyer. And I remember in, um, in eighth grade, we had to deliver this kind of this, uh, this, this speech about, you know, if anything you wanted it to be about. Mine was about racism in America. And this was right after, uh, you know, um, seeing Rodney King uh, being beaten, like seeing his experience with the police, seeing kind of what happened to him, seeing the way in which the police um, were able to, you know, get acquitted and walk after having beaten him within inches of his life, and there be no real re- repercussions for it. It was just outrageous to me, um, and and. It sparked like this desire in me to, you know, figure out how I might change that that dynamic. And I wasn't sure if it would be that I'll be a lawyer, um, but I knew that the law was something that we had to change, um, or at least push back against, um, as part of the overall enterprise of fixing that that dynamic. And so that's kind of how I got got interested in, got pulled into it, and. You know, from there, as I learned more and more about our history, um, it, it just became more and more clear to me that that's what I wanted to do.
1: Everyone we spoke to had developed rigorous analysis about forces that shape our lives as Black people specifically, and people of color more broadly. Poet Tango Eisen-Martin explains that when he was a child, a community of mothers pushed him to think critically about the world around him,
4: like mothers. Who, who just said, "Now nah, we're gonna kind of, de- we're gonna determine, you know, we're gonna determine our kids' reality, you know? Also, man, she just always asked me a whole lot of questions and was constantly asking me to deconstruct what I was looking at. And so just, it gave me like, that's my engagement of reality to pick it apart and figure out what's going on and look for bigger pictures and this type of thing. It's interesting, like it, it, in a, in a way, like there wasn't a child's place when it came to a political opinion or a social opinion. You know what I mean? Like, well, no, what do you think? You know? And I, and and I and, and in that and there there was a I think a confidence there that probably is 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 what hitched the ride with the poetry that I always had like respect for my analysis.
0: One of our intentions for this season was to explore different areas of justice work. That learning begins with language. You got to have the right words. We turn back to Taylor, who explains the difference between environmental racism and environmental justice and how deep community engagement is fundamental to justice work
2: environmental injustice or environmental racism so we're thinking about discrimination uh, either based on race or if we're discrimination based on some other aspect could be class could be uh, language or nationality ethnicity any of those things but um and and either the withholding of, of resources or uh, the degrading of an environment based off of of, of any of those things uh, that result in having a less healthy uh, place to live, uh, that environmental racism and environmental justice is a cause and the reaction is environmental justice. Environmental justice, we're thinking about two key things. And the first thing is meaningful involvement and the second thing is fair treatment. Uh, and the two, two are very closely related and meaningful involvement specifically is related to what we do at, at We Act, especially in our policy department as we we try to make sure that folks are not only represented at the table, but especially if it impacts their home or their neighborhood or where they live, that they are directly uh, involved in decision-making. Oftentimes we, we can't talk about the justice pieces, the solutions without getting deeper into the injustices and, and how things came to be. And a lot of time that's an overlap between uh, policy, history, and science.
1: David Johns grounds our understanding about gender-based violence with a powerful historical analysis. It notes that current laws and policies sustain violence against Black women, where women include cis and trans women. David is the executive director for the National Black Justice Coalition.
5: There is a history of gender-based violence that Black women and girls, and again, when I say women and girls, I mean cis and trans, have always experienced and it has been exacerbated by colonial Western white supremacist thoughts and practices informed by the transatlantic and slave trade. So there are in so many ways still legally protected policies and practices that encourage the physical, social, economic, political oppression of black folks, of women and girls, and when applying a lens of intersectionality affect like black women and girls in a particular way. But note here, which is that a lot of folks have been introduced to the term intersectionality vis-a-vis the work of Kimberly Crenshaw who was responsible for credited with introducing it to the legal academy as a part of the push that center critical race theory. And Patricia Hill Collins remind us, reminds us that intersectionality is a construct and a framework that has existed and been used by indigenous communities women of color, Black women in particular, for centuries. None of this stuff is new.
0: We heard Tongo acknowledge the community of mothers who committed to teaching their children to notice, critique, and challenge injustice. Their efforts, like so many parents of conscience, step up where public schools fall short. Brandon Johnson, principal of the Social Justice School, explains how his school teaches children to see themselves as scholar activists.
5: One of the things that we do starting at fifth grade is start to teach kids, not only about identity, but how to understand the language around identity and the language around injustice and see it in themselves, but also see it in these larger contexts that they play out in like real world settings. And I think uh, that that's powerful. You know, when a, when a child, no matter how old, can name, notice and acknowledge the things that they are experiencing, um, then they innately have power. Um, and that power gives them the, the, the freedom uh, the fight to be able to, like, to speak out against the things that, that uh, they feel are, are wrong or unjust.
1: Marcus Batchelor, Deputy Director for Leadership Development at People for the American Way, became an activist as a young kid from Congress Heights. In the fall of 2019, he launched his campaign for an at-large city council seat, expecting to run a spirited campaign on a progressive platform. That's not what happened. Marcus reflects on how he experienced 2020.
6: In September 2019, um, uh, as you know, I announced my candidacy for an at-large seat on the DC Council, um, and clearly thought I was going to run a drastically different race uh, than I than I ended up um, having to right right as soon as we got into the full swing of the campaign, the curtain kind of came down and you know, it was COVID in March, it was George Floyd and Breonna Taylor by that summer, right? It was, you know, uh, by that fall, it was kind of the assault on voting rights and, and all of these things leading up to the election. Um, and so, you know, at the same time as all of us were trying to work through, right, the social and emotional and sometimes economic and medical impacts of uh of 2020 and of of the pandemic and all of these things, um, I also had to, in pretty real time, try to figure out how we were going to solve all of them.
0: As Marcus just highlighted, 2020 changed us. It was a transformative year with COVID, protests, unemployment, voter suppression, and historic elections. These events had the power to disrupt some of our fundamental beliefs. We asked each of our guests how their beliefs evolved. Historian and public intellectual G. Derek Musgrove interrogates the popular word ally for the way it obscures how white supremacy threatens everyone and the struggle belongs to all of us.
7: You know, the idea of allyship, which I think going into 2020 I just accepted it as like something that's okay right like sure we can use that language that's fine um, and I've really become quite hostile to it uh, over the course of the past year um, and the main reason is is because I I, I worry about racial reductionism in this moment um, you know uh, this idea that you know, sort of, white privilege is is kind of like this this blanket that envelops all white people, and and we, and we forget about some of the teachings of people like Du Bois or uh, Oliver Cromwell Cromwell Cox, or more recently Robin Kelly, who was my advisor when I was in graduate school, and they say, look, you know, um, white supremacy is a bad deal for the white working class. It's it's a way for the the white upper class to yoke the white working class to it and to divide the working class, which is of course, multiracial. Um, and, and so this, this idea that like the struggle is black peoples and indigenous peoples and other you know, um, oppressed minorities alone and then white people can kind of jump in as allies, it feels very discomforting to me in, in two levels, one on the theoretical because of what I just pointed out, right? But then also on the personal, um, you know, I wrote Chocolate City with Chris Myers Ash, uh, and you know he's a, a white guy from D.C. grew up in the Chocolate City, right? Um, went to Deal and Wilson. You know, like for a while he was White Boy Chris, that was his name, right? And dedicated himself uh, to um, a more just society you know, founded the Mississippi Freedom Project, which is a freedom school in, in, in uh, Sunflower County, Mississippi, um, wrote about Fannie Lou Hamer for his dissertation in his first book, uh, and has dedicated himself today to um, helping um, uh, refugees from the Middle East resettle in Maine, where he lives, right? The, main, the New Mainers mm-hmm. re- uh, uh, Project. Um, I, I grew up, you know, um, with a good friend, good friends with Jerry Berrigan, who was, Um, You know, a child of of the great Catholic worker Berrigan family of Baltimore, uh, who, of course, inspired the people here in D.C., uh, Ed Guinan, who created the the Community for Creative Nonviolence, uh, which is the founder of our largest shelter here in the city down on on Fourth Street. Um, And so these are these these folks are, to me, you know, sort of fellow travelers and comrades and, and, and um, you know, sort of uh, people who I stand next to in the struggle. They're not sort of backing me up, right? They're not support. Um, you know, they are, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, co-creators uh, as we're attempting to to make um, the, the ideas for a better world, as I think about myself as a historian, but, but generally to trying to create a better world. And so if there's anything I think that 2020 um, sort of, pushed me towards. It was becoming hostile to that idea and in, in really trying to think about um, what Jesse Jackson would have called a rainbow coalition, uh, Fred Hampton would have called a rainbow coalition, and what my own experience as a young person growing up in Baltimore with friends like the Berrigans uh, would lead me to believe is, is a proper way of organizing
1: struggle. you have just heard from a few of our favorite guests, environmental justice advocate, Taylor Morton, civil rights attorney, Vincent Sutherland, board laureate of San Francisco, Tongo Eisen Martin, gender equality advocate, David John, social justice school leader, Brandon Johnson, DC native and young politician, Marcus Batchelor, and author, historian, and professor, G. Derek Musgrove. I sincerely appreciate each of their insights, and I hope you took away a gem or two from the moments we shared. Of course, the full episodes from each of our guests are available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at The Dap Project.
0: To think about season four, I want to tell a quick story. During the pandemic, my girlfriends and I were walking through Rock Creek Park here in the district. It was one of the places of refuge that we took during the pandemic. We were spread apart because we were social distancing, and a white guy runs by us and yells something to the effect of, move over, you're taking up too much space. And then he also looks at me and he said, we're in this together. By that time, we were well aware that while we were all in it together, we were experiencing the stressors of the pandemic very differently. So in season four, we're turning inward and looking at personal stories of resilience.
1: I know that each of us have a tale of resilience to share, likely more than one. Life is known to throw their share of curveballs at us. It is resilience that eventually allows us to knock that motherfucker out the park. Or, as we have said before, come back better. Care to share your story?
0: We'd love to hear from you. Please take our survey, which is in the newsletter and show notes, and share with us what resilience means to you. Who should we talk with? What should we ask them about? What stories of resilience would inspire you?
1: Yes, who would you like to hear from? We have some remarkable guests in line, but we would love to add to the list.
0: Season four is scheduled for launch in July, so we are getting busy.
1: We stay busy.
0: We really do, sometimes <laughs> on nonsense. Um, speaking of staying busy, TDP be Reading, our June book club texts are The Fire Next Time and Nothing Personal, both by James Baldwin. We invite you to read with us. People who have read with us have never regretted it. Book clubs are the introvert's dream. We are in our own thoughts together.
1: Yes, and I cannot wait to have this talk. It's James Baldwin, y'all. <laughs> I'm geeked like a dude in the summer of 1996, sitting in the parking lot of Tower Records on Tuesday morning, waiting for the doors to open so I can get that new AT Aliens from Outcast. But I digress. <laughs> this book talk will be dope. What a
0: super specific <laughs> <laughs> out holler at me on Instagram at Rhonda Henderson to talk books. I'm at Ruby Reads Chocolate City. On Twitter, I'm at educate underscore rhonda.
1: Catch me on IG at Aaron.stalworth and of course find the DAP project on IG at the dot And if you tweet, we're in the Twitterverse at DAP underscore project.
0: Resistance is a highway with many lanes. We hope you find yours and press on the gas.
1: Take care, folks.